invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. John 17, verses 20 through 26. We will also be reading a passage from Ephesians. That's not listed in your bulletin, but I will have us turn there in just a minute. John 17, verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I and them. Now take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 7. Paul addresses this issue of oneness and unity inside of his body. Ephesians 4 verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called, the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The grace was given to each of us according to the measure Christ gift. The word of the Lord. Pray and ask his blessing upon his preached word in this week. Father, as we continue in this series of looking at this high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed for us, Father, the words here are so rich that they are almost too good to believe, but yet they're true. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, show us more of the good news of Jesus of your ongoing grace, your ongoing love, all that is true because, Jesus, you declared it and you pray for it. Father, help us to see the truth again this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of our previous senior ministers here at TCPC, a man named John Sartell, uh, once preached a sermon here uh, that radically affected my life. Uh, John was here on that Sunday in the early 2000s for his candidating sermon. It was uh, the week that we were going to be voting on him to be our pastor. But I'll never forget the sermon because he made a theological statement, a theological fact really, that I'd never heard. And I found it extraordinary then, I find it extraordinary today. He said this, he said, our prayers are eternal. Our prayers are eternal. 
That is, when we pray to God the Father in the name of the Son and the power of His Spirit, those prayers go before the throne of God where they stay forever. There's something incredibly powerful about that picture. That is, when Christians pray, our prayers live on before God's throne. That is such a powerful image, more than what we truly can understand. Now, the point of that sermon years ago was to convince us of the power of prayer and to convince us to pray about all things. And that's precisely why I mention it this morning, that the reality of prayer is both eternal and powerful. It's greater than what we could ever imagine, and that means it's really, really, really good news for us as Christians, not simply because we can have high hopes in our prayer, though we can do that, but because Jesus Christ himself has prayed for us. And since he has prayed for us, his prayers are eternal. But they are before his throne. Now, this is our last Sunday looking at John 17, this high priestly prayer which Jesus offered in the hours before he was to be crucified. We have seen in Jesus' prayer of the last few weeks that Jesus first prayed for himself. He prayed that he would glorify his Father by finishing the task of going to the cross and dying for us. We've seen that he prayed for his original disciples, that they would have unity, that they're calling inside of this world, that they would be one, that they would have success in revealing God's love into this hostile world. But now, at the end of the prayer, the conclusion of Jesus' prayer, he prays for us. He prays for you, he prays for me. And he prays for all those who would ever believe in him. For all those that the Father had given to Jesus, he prayed. For all those whom Jesus would gladly separate himself from the Father, he prayed. For all those whom he would willingly take on human flesh and live a common life and die a horrendous death, for us, he prayed. And those prayers are still the prayers of our Lord. I want us to think about it this morning in the context of if this is what Jesus prayed some 2,000 years ago, and this is still the desire of our Savior for us today. So the question must be for us and for everyone who will ever believe in the name of Jesus, what does Jesus desire for you? What does he desire for us? What is it that he wants for us? You see, his prayers then indicate his desire for us today. Now, maybe the bigger question for us all, do we really want to receive what Jesus desires for us. Well, let's look at this in three ways this morning. Three things from Jesus' words here I want us to consider for our life even this morning. First, that we would embrace our glorious life. Second, we would embrace our glorious calling. And lastly, we would embrace his continual love for us. Our glorious life, our glorious calling, his continual love. And my prayer for us is that we would see ourselves and we would see each other as the Lord sees us, as the Lord's prayers reveal for us. All right, first consider this morning this glorious life that we have because of Christ. Look back at verse 22. I hope as you read these words that it's a little bit strange for you. I hope it's a little bit hard for you. I hope that these words don't sound exactly right to your mind. Verse 22 is stunning. 
Listen to it again. Jesus prayed this. The glory you, that is the Father, have given to me, I've given it to them. Catch that. The glory that the Father has given to Jesus. Jesus has given that glory to people like us. It's stunning. I hope it lands on you that way. That is all that the Father revealed about the Jesus. All that was brought to light about the Son is the reality now that Jesus has taken that glory and given it to every one of us all over the world who will ever believe in him. There's something incredibly powerful that has happened to us. Thus, what is true of, of us if we have faith in Christ is so rich, I think it's hard for us to accept. Because the reality is, you are more glorious than you would ever dare consider yourself to be. You're more glorious than you would ever dare to admit. You're more glorious than you're comfortable even saying. Now, chances are none of us really disagree with the appropriate glory that Jesus was given by his Father. That kind of makes sense to us. But I know I squirm a bit when I recognize that Jesus has given me the same glory the Father gave him. Verse 23, the Father is in Jesus, and Jesus is in us. Thus, the reality of what has become of us must be embraced because Jesus says it's a fact. So what does this mean? What does it really look like? How does God now look at us? Well, we don't have the full answer to that here in this passage, but we get some really, really good clues. Look at verse 24. It gives this picture of that Jesus cannot wait to take us and show us the glory that he had in his Father's presence even before the world began. There's an element here that Jesus wants to show us off for us to see and experience all of his glory. It says he wants us to see his existence was like even before he came to earth. Imagine the scene in Isaiah chapter 6 where he's revealing all of his glory. He wants us to see it. He wants us to be around it. He wants us to know that this is us, not that we have become God, but we are so connected to him. I don't know if this has happened in your life, but I suspect it has for many of you, that perhaps there was a time where you had a boyfriend or girlfriend and you had never taken that person home. And you could not wait for that occasion when you brought them home for the first time because you really, really like this particular person. I know this illustration doesn't connect to the glory of Jesus and us, but you know what I'm saying here. What would you want to communicate to that person that you're proud of? You want to show them your old high school. You want to show them your old stomping grounds. All the things that you love in your life, you wanted to show that person to give them the honor of knowing more about you. That's the picture here. Several years ago, I was on the eighth grade field trip with Trinity Christian Academy's uh, trip to Washington, D.C. Uh, my son and I were there and a couple of his buddies, and, and we had the chance uh, one afternoon to go into Congressman Andy Barr's office. We were not dressed appropriately. We were not really prepared for everything, but the congressman was there, and he met us there, and he uh, greeted us for a brief moment, and he told us that he had to go to another meeting but he took us back into his office and he said, make yourself at home. It's your office. So three eighth grade boys and me made ourselves completely at home. We took pictures sitting in his desk. Uh, there might have been some feet placed upon the desk. But there was an element of, come in. Make yourself at home. All that is here, it's for you. Here's the point. 
Jesus's glory is not complete. We're not in it. He wants to share it. His greatest glory is revealed in him sharing his glory with us. In this regard, Jesus simply cannot imagine a world if we're not in it. This is our glorious existence. This is his prayer. He wants to show us off to his father. Now, here's the question. Is that how you think of yourself? Is that how you believe about yourself? Is this how you see yourself, this glorious creature? In the middle of all of our brokenness, in the middle of all of our stories, do you see yourself the way Jesus sees you? We had a pastoral retreat seven or eight years ago, uh, back when Luke was still in high school. And we went down to uh, Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, to our pastoral team at that time. And the pastor of the church there, a man named Joe Novitson, had each of us write down words that we would use to describe ourselves. Apart from Christ, just in our natural existence, what are the words that come to your mind when you think of you? What he told us is that most people privately, in the secret of their heart, have a very, very, very low view of themselves. We tend to think of ourselves as sad or mediocre or just trying to survive for another day or dumb or pretending or whatever the case may be. On the other hand, sometimes, for whatever reason, a broken world, we may see ourselves as perfectly exalted, that we're great, that we have no problems at all. You see, in either case, the theme of our following of Jesus will always be to transition what we think of ourselves to what Jesus says is true of us because he's inside of us. What Jesus says is, I want you. I want to show you off. I want you to come and be with me. I want you to see my home. I want you to join me. I want you to look around and see all this is yours. One commentator I read this week said this about this verse, this passage. He says, all who place trust in him then become partakers of all the riches of Jesus himself. That's who we are. This is our glorious life. We have Jesus' righteousness, his love, his joy, his knowledge, his wisdom. Now again, we do not become God, obviously, but we receive glory from him. This is how Jesus looks at you. I hope this will connect a bit. Will and I talked about it this week as we looked at this passage. Our glory is so much more than just having our sins forgiven. As if that were not enough. Our glory is more than just that. You see, your father doesn't tolerate you this morning. He delights in you. Christ is in you. So I pray for us all. Lord, open our eyes to celebrate the reality of our glory in Christ. I pray that our souls can relax a bit and worship and celebrate and enjoy what Jesus says is true. All right, so this is us. This is our story. We are glorious in Christ. It's our story. And we must embrace it so that we'll be able to embrace everyone else's glory. Consider point two. What does Jesus desire for us? It is to embrace who we are And now it's to embrace our calling. And that's how we consider everyone else. Here's what I mean. When we look at ourselves in the same way that Jesus looks at us, theologically, 
those truths, by definition, are going to affect all the relationships that we have around us. Notice the overwhelming concern of Jesus' heart as he prayed. Look back. Verse 21, he prayed that they would be one. Verse 22, he prayed that they would be one. Verse 23, he prayed that they may become perfectly one. Clearly, oneness inside of the church is desperately upon the heart of our Savior. And the oneness demonstrated here finds its basis in the Holy Trinity itself. The relationships inside the Godhead are the model in some way of the relationships that we are to have with each other. Now, is this a mystery? Of course. Is this wonderful? Absolutely. But hear me say this. If this is a mystery and if this is wonderful, is this not what we should expect to be the chief obstacle of our time here on earth? I think so. It seems entirely plausible based upon the seriousness of Jesus' prayers, the repetition of his prayer, that the battle line of the evil one has been clearly drawn. Our enemy desires that there would not be oneness inside of his body. Jesus' pleading with his Father for our oneness reveals what a difficult task this surely must be. If it was easy, Jesus wouldn't have prayed it. If it was easy, Jesus wouldn't continue to pray it. And I think we can see this clearly from the text. It's, it's, not, it's not hard to understand. It's pretty plain. But I think we all kind of intuitively know it as well. We've been in relationships long enough to know that sometimes they can be hard. Sometimes they can be challenging. Sometimes things can just happen. Unity in the church is difficult. Uh, I hope the story comes across as funny to you because it did to me. But I recently attended a funeral. That's not the funny part. Uh, but the, as the deceased was being eulogized, uh, stories were being told about this man. And the story was told, the reality is, he had been a member of the uh, same church for his entire life. And he was passionate in his small town to invite people to come to the church. He was just known for that. Many, many people had been invited to church. Well, one man telling a story about him said this, that in one of those occasions when this man was inviting someone the classic response was given to him. He said, don't you know that the church is filled with hypocrites? Don't you know that? And the man responded simply with this, I know, but we have room for one more. Come on. I'm glad you thought it was funny. I thought it was funny. Why is oneness in the church so important? And why is it so difficult? Why is it so hard? Why is this always such an issue? Again, look what is at stake. Look back at verse 21 and verse 23. Jesus said, it's because the world will believe that you sent me and the church is one. You see the task in front of us? You see why Jesus cares about our unity so much? The oneness that we share is an overflow of the Trinity. It is the plan for the world to believe that Jesus came. This is the plan. This is the strategy. Again, the teaching here is perfectly clear. I doubt anyone disagrees with Jesus' prayers. But what does this look like for us? 2,000 years after Jesus prayed it, knowing that these prayers are still before the throne, 
What does it look like practically for you and me to live inside of a church where as sinners we're going to have problems? What do we do? Now, Jesus did not provide details inside of this high priestly prayer. He just prayed it. However, he did provide additional books to the Bible. Turn over again to Ephesians chapter 4 and look back and see as Paul wrote about this very topic of unity in the church. You see, he gives several doctrinal things in which we are one. We're one in faith, one in baptism. Even this morning, we'll come as one to the communion table. All of us have one source of belonging to the Lord. We're all one in Christ. But in verses 2 through 3, Paul gave direct imperatives for us as people inside the church. And these stood out to me so much as I prepared this week that I just could not leave them out. You see, our oneness does not mean that we're all best friends, that we all go on vacation together. That, that's not oneness is. It means that we live in peace with each other. But that peace is often hard to find. So what practically are people to do to be one in the Lord? I want to ask you three diagnostic questions to see if you are seeking oneness inside of the church. Three questions. First, can you ever be wrong? Can you be? Secondly, can you slow down? And then thirdly, can you take initiative other I'm going to show you this just in these couple of verses. Consider this verse about being wrong. Paul mentions something here about humility and gentleness. You know, humility is the recognition that I'm not the star of the show. Humility recognizes the story's not about me. Humility recognizes that God is at work in everyone's life. Now, of course, the voice of the world will always say, if I'm good, you must be good too. If I'm good, everything else must be fine. But Jesus seems to turn that on its head, and it's more like, if we aren't good, no one's good. Humility is coupled with gentleness because care is for others and not just yourself. It's going to affect your relationships. And embracing that, even though we are in Christ and he delights in us, as long as we are in our physical bodies, we are going to sin. So. Can you admit this morning that sometimes you got it wrong? Sometimes I get it wrong. See, humble people can admit their mistakes because they understand this. God's love for them was never based on them getting it right. It was always based on his willingness to give it. First, can you be wrong? This is the ethos of a church of oneness. But secondly, in our walk toward unity and oneness with each other, can you be patient. Paul mentions here the dreaded word patience. I wish he had left it out, but he didn't. Patience means at the very least in regards to our brothers and sisters in Christ that our agenda can wait as the Lord is at work around everyone else. Knowing that you might be wrong about something can really cause us to celebrate patience. We really should delight in it. But let me say, I'm terrible at this. The question to can you slow down as Jesus is at work in everyone else's life, not just yours? Last thing I'll say here is, can you take the initiative? And this is the hard one. Verse 3 of Ephesians 4 says, 
eager to maintain a unity spirit. Eager to maintain implies there are actual action steps beyond changing our attitude. Eager to maintain, I believe, implies that we engage in the dreaded work of having hard conversations with people with whom we don't want to have conversations. It's the painful and complicated task of working through issues that you don't want to work through with people with whom you certainly don't want to work through. It's hard. Eager to maintain unity includes granting forgiveness to people who have hurt you. You really have. It's praying for someone instead of against someone. It's hoping for the Lord to heal what seems to be impossible. I know you cannot make people receive grace. But you most certainly can give grace. Again, let me say, it is hard. So can you take the initiative and trust the Lord to maintain unity? You know what's normal inside of Christianity throughout the world? It's pouting. It's grudges. It's ignoring. It's church splits. All under the umbrella of building God's kingdom. Now we can laugh at that. We know it's not true. But yet in our hearts we know this is often the world. We actually can seek oneness with each other. And you know why. It's because this is exactly what Christ has done for us. He took the initiative when he came to us. Jesus is patient with us today. Jesus is gentle with us today. That leads us to our final point. We've seen our glorious life. We've seen this glorious calling of seeking oneness. But let's close with the power which we find to do these very things. Look at verse 26 back in John 17. And let this thought, let this truth bring us to his table this morning. Jesus closed his prayer with this. He said, I have made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known. I will continue to make it known to them that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What does Jesus promise his father he's going to do? He's going to keep revealing his father's love to us. He's going to keep showing us again and again and again the name of his father. There will be no end of Jesus giving his grace to us so that we will know his love for us. So guess what we are free to do this morning? We're free not to be afraid. We're free to take risk. We're free to be courageous. We're free to believe. We're free to admit. We're free to be one. We really are free. Why? Because Jesus is going to keep showing us the love of his Father time after time after time after time after time. This is his prayer. You know, TCPC has so many great desires and goals over the next months and years and hopefully decades. You know, we're seeking the Lord, trusting the Lord to pay off the debt of the church. It's a big goal. It's a lot of faith. It will require tons of faith. Trinity Christian Academy is trying to build a new building. It's a big goal. It's a lot of work. There's a parish group in Georgetown. It sure feels like a looming church plant. It's really exciting. It's a big goal. There are campus ministries all over central Kentucky doing incredible stuff. It's so exciting. The children's ministry here at TCPC is so blessed. If we do all of these things, and we accomplish our goal, but yet we are not one 
and the unbelieving world doesn't believe that Jesus came from his father, then why are we doing this? We're doing them because our glorious calling is that we can't be one. Because you know why? Jesus is one with us. He is in us and his prayers for our unity are existing before his throne. They will be there forever. Amen? And let's pray. And then with one voice, let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. And then we will as one body come and be fed by him. Oh, Father, we are grateful to you. We thank you. Your word is true. Your love for us is real. Father, would you cause our hearts to believe the gospel message. Father, I pray for this church and every church throughout the world. Lord, may we be one together, we ask. And now we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, glory forever.